This message was presented at the GYC 2015 conference called Chosen Faithful in Louisville, Kentucky. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Father in heaven, we're so thankful for a new day, a new year. And Lord, as we look forward to 2016, above all, we wish for you to come soon. And uh, as we discuss some of these principles, Lord, may we ever keep that end in mind. Uh, but may we be faithful to your word and to apply the principles you give to us in even what may be the mundane and regular and ordinary aspects of life. Help us to be faithful and teach us something today and guide us with your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, visitors, you can keep trickling in as we begin. So we're on session number five here, and the title of our session is Trading the Talents, Principles on Investing. So this entire segment, we're going to be looking at investing. And I mentioned this yesterday, but when I was invited to do this seminar at GYC, I went on Facebook and I was just saying, hey, if you were going to a Christian um, personal finance seminar, what would you like to hear about? There were things like getting out of debt and then investing, how to do a budget and then investing. How do you buy a car? And then investing. How do you start a business? Investing. It was like every other person had a question about investing. And actually, after going through a few of the sessions yesterday, uh, one of the number one, actually the number one question that I've been asked so far is, is it possible to get 8% returns on your investments? Because that happens to be one of the recurring themes in all of my examples for compound interest and investing that I've used. Uh, so we're going to talk a little bit about that as well. So this is the session. If you've asked a question about 8%, uh, you want to keep your ears open. So I make this announcement every time. My wife and I, we write this blog, uh, savingthecrumbs.com, where we already go through most of the things I'm sharing with you here, uh, except you're getting something added value, added value here, and that is we infuse this presentation with all of the Spirit of Prophecy principles, Whereas on the blog, it is not specific to Adventist. It is a Christian blog, so I reserve my um, basis purely to Scripture and, and other things. Uh, and I sprinkle in Spirit of Prophecy principles without saying that it's Spirit of Prophecy. So if you read carefully, uh, you'll see Ellen White speaking. I just don't necessarily put her in quotes. Uh, so the principles are all there, but here explicitly I give you passages and uh, the page numbers and all that. Uh, and so, savingthecrumbs.com, you can also get the handouts. They're on the GYC app. I know it's a little bit hard to find, but it's on there. Also, you can download the handouts later when they post the messages on the website, and they'll also be on Audioverse eventually. And in the handout, you'll get all the slides, and you'll get the links to articles specific to what I'm talking about in each session. So it's a direct link to the things that relate to what we're discussing here. So you want to get that handout It'll help you find what you might want to learn more about on our website. Okay, so enough of that. Trading the talents. Well, where does that phrase appear in the Bible? You remember the parable that Jesus told regarding the end times, Matthew chapter 25, about his servants, the servants who received talents. And what were the servants supposed to do with the talents? Increase the talents. And one of the people, the one with one talent, buried his talent in the earth. And this is what Jesus said to him. 
You ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. And when we read Christ's Optic Lessons, Ellen White breaks it down. She applies spiritually the talents to all sorts of things. Everything that's good that God gives to us, our strength, our speech, our health, our influence, our time. You remember reading that, right? She also mentions that money happens to be one of the talents. And money is actually the literal object that is used in the parable. And so I think we would be misinterpreting or misapplying scripture if we actually say this applies to everything except, the, except money. Does that make sense what I'm saying? So the talents include all the gifts that God gives to us and the wealth, the assets, the material possessions he gives to us happens to be one of them. And of course, as with all the talents, what's the purpose of increasing them? It's not for our own personal aggrandizement or opulence or lavish life. It's for returning to the Lord. So that's the foundational principle. It all belongs to God, but we are his uh, managers of his means, and we have an obligation to improve the assets that we have under our management. And uh, God's going to hold us accountable for the right use of all of our talents, and one of them being uh, the money that he's given to us. So, Spirit of Prophecy makes this explicitly clear. Councils on Stewardship, page 113, paragraph 1. The followers of Christ are not to despise wealth. They're to look upon wealth as the Lord's entrusted talent. And we've read this quote before, and again, she says, it's not for our own personal use, but we are to improve it for the advancement of the gospel. All right. So, the Bible does talk about investing. Now we need to understand better what the principles are. Because when we hear about investing in the world today, it's surrounded with almost this aura of uh, greed and covetousness. It's like when we talk about investing, it's almost like, well, how am I going to get filthy rich? Or how am I going to uh, get a lot of money really fast? And a lot of times we sort of view investing as the secret sauce or the silver bullet to solve all of our other financial problems. It's like, well, I know I can get out of debt, but if only I can find the right investment, then I can get out of debt. You know, this kind of thinking, I think, pervades a lot of our, our psyches. Well, that's not really what investing is all about. And so I want to share with you some principles that will help you uh, sift through the myriad of options out there uh, that you can choose from. Because investing, there's a, a million and one ways that everyone and their uh, stepdad is going to try to sell you. So, principles on investing. We're going to just go through a list of uh, 10 principles, and then at the end, this is the part you're all waiting for, I'm going to share some of the ex uh, investments that I personally have had experience with, and I'll even share a little bit of how much my yield has been and returns and so forth. Number one, the first principle, and perhaps the most important, is that investing is for defined future needs, not for hoarding. Way back at the very first session, we talked about three uses of money. Money only has three uses, right? After you earn it, you can either spend it for current needs or wants, save it for future needs or wants, or to give it away. And so investing is got to fit within one of those categories, right? And a saving for the future is not saving for no purpose, it's saving for a specific purpose. And so Ellen White says this, Christ's Object Lessons, page 352, paragraph 1, hoarded wealth is not merely useless, it is a curse. 
it is, in this life, it is a snare to the soul, drawing the affections away from the heavenly treasure. And the great day of God is witness to unused talents and neglect opportunities will condemn its possessor. So we have this balance because we talked about we need to save money for future needs, but we shouldn't hoard money. Well, what's the difference between saving and hoarding? Let's take a look. Councils on Stewardship 250, paragraph 2. Had you and your wife understood it to be a duty? Okay, that's a word that Ellen White frequently uses when, it talks, when she talks about making provisions for the future and saving and so forth. That God has enjoined upon you to deny your tastes and desires and make provision for the future. And that's another word for saving or investing for the future. Instead of living merely for the present, you could now have had a competency and your family have had the comforts of life. So we have a balance here in the spirit of prophecy. We've got on one hand, hoarding wealth is not, not only a bad idea, it's a curse. But on the other hand, it is a duty for us to make provision for the future. And there was another scripture we read in 1 Timothy where it says, if you don't provide for the necessities of your family, you have denied the faith and you're worse than an infidel. Those are very strong words. And so we got to understand there's a difference between investing for a set need versus looking at just getting filthy rich with no end in sight, just wanting more and more. And this is the reason why I spent a whole session talking about creating a plan. We talked about it yesterday in session number three, having a plan, starting with the goal in mind, and you are saving up for a specific purpose. And anything extra beyond that, you don't need it. And that takes us actually to point number two. After you save up for all of your basic needs, all of your future needs that you have planned for, Everything extra should flow into God's treasury. And this is a little preview for tomorrow. We're talking about investing today, but tomorrow we're going to talk about investing as well. And the best investment is in the bank of heaven. And you're going to, there's some really interesting quotes from the Spirit of Prophecy talking about this idea of investing in the bank of heaven uh, that you might, you might find fascinating. So we'll talk about that tomorrow afternoon. So <clears throat> here she says, Testimonies for the Church, Volume 5, page 156. Brethren, awake from your life of selfishness and act like consistent Christians. The Lord requires you to economize your means. We've talked about that a lot yesterday. And let every dollar not needed for your comfort flow into the treasury. I love the balance in the spirit of prophecy. Because she doesn't say, let every dollar flow into the treasury. But she says, let every dollar not needed for your comfort flow into the treasury. God does not expect us to live in a cardboard box, okay? And so when we are saving up for the future, the balance is have a stated goal, have a modest life. Once you reach your goal, you don't need any more, so give it to the Lord's work, okay? And of course, this is not negating, I want to make sure you understand, this does not negate the regular contributions of tithes and offerings on the way. This is in addition to that. And we're going to talk about tithes and offerings and, and all that tomorrow. So, that takes us to principle number three, okay? Take advantage of the power of compound interest by making time your ally. So, I, I threw this out there as a little teaser in our first session. Uh, so, let's review what we talked about. Thrifty Tiffany, Spendy Sally, all right? Both of them are the same age, young ladies coming out of school. Uh, they have, uh, so, so Tiffany here, let's start with her. She saves $2,000 a year from age 20 to 30. So, for 10 years, she saves $2,000 a year. Invested at 8%, $20,000 saved of her own money over 10 years. Okay? 
Sally, on the other hand, she saves $2,000 a year from 30 to 65, also at 8%. So she invests of her own money $70,000 over 35 years. So looking at these two people, it looks as though Sally is going to be ahead of Tiffany. She saves more. She's saving over a longer period of time. Same rate of return. So of course, right? Well, actually, at 65 years old, Tiffany here is going to have half a million dollars where Sally is only going to have 380000 So this is an illustration of the result of compound interest. And compound interest is simply the mathematical marvel of interest being able to earn interest on itself. So it's like a snowball. One year you earn interest on your money. The next year you earn interest on the principal plus the interest of the first year. And then the next year is plus the interest of the next year. And so over time it becomes an exponential effect and this is actually the graph of the earnings, the returns on the investment for Tiffany in the blue and Sally in the red. And so you see, what's the difference? Sally saved more over a longer period of time. They both have the same rate of return. The only difference here is that Tiffany started sooner. So the secret ingredient that you got to mix with your compound interest is time, is time. And I mentioned this also before. I'm going to just breeze through this real quickly. The life hack for students, I, I gave the example, a theoretical example, that as a student, you can retire theoretically in 10 years. And there are indeed people who have done this out in the, in the world. Uh, if you earn $50,000, you live on 20, you invest 30, 8% again. In 10 years, you have about $500,000. And using the generally accepted safe withdrawal rate of 4%, that amount gives you $20,000 a year. So in theory, your nest egg can fund you for $20,000 a year. And actually, that also includes uh, accountability for um, inflation going over uh, in the future as well. So this is another example of the power of compound interest. It can continue to work for you over time. And I share this life hack for couples. So I'll just summarize quickly what this is. If you get married and both of you are working, for the first year of your marriage, save one person's income, take all the money from the wedding that you got, invest that one year's income, and in 40 years, if you're married at 25, you could be theoretically ready for retirement as well. So that is a possibility based on this kind of uh, rate of return and also investing for a long period of time. So these are just illustrations of the power of compound interest. And the key here is, you got to start early. And so the Chinese proverb, this one that says, the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. The second best time is now. And uh, I think that's very true. But here's the thing. A lot of people you know, hear this part of the presentation and they feel like, okay, i got to invest right now. But let's wait a minute. Okay? While it is true that the best time would be right now, there are things to consider before you dive headfirst into investing. There are other principles to come, but in terms of timing, one is have you paid off most of your debt? Now, certain types of debt, if you've got a mortgage and things like that, it may not necessarily be the same case, but if you have high interest uh, credit card loans, student loans, car loans, you know, money you have to return to family that you borrowed from, those kinds of things, that is your best investment, paying off that debt. Because just think, if you have 7% interest on your student loan, or a credit card, which is 18, 20, 25%. If you invest, you have to match, 
you have to get in return at least the same amount of interest as the interest you're paying out just to break even. And let me just tell you something, the bank always wins. And so if the bank is charging you a uh, 25% interest, I'll just tell you, it is not reasonable to expect your investments to even break even with that. And so if you want to get, invest, get, get investing and you have debt, that's your best investment. Because that also reduces your risk, okay? Nobody's gonna have strings over you, you're curing yourself of smallpox and all the stuff that we talked about, getting out of slavery. And then another thing, I haven't really mentioned this too much, and that is don't start getting invested uh, until you have an emergency fund. You need to have uh, a cushion because investments can go up and down and you want to have a cushion to cover in case emergencies happen and guess what? Emergencies do happen. And so you want to have at least three to six months of living expenses. That's a generally accepted rule. Um, I know there are some who have the one-year rule where if, if everything in life shut down, the family firm continues on for one year based on our, our savings. And uh, my family is not quite there. We're probably at about nine months for that. But um, there are, that's a good tip for ministries as well. Uh, security in case of time of need. So that was number three. Make time your ally. Okay, so, so you want to start as soon as possible because of the power of compound interest as long as you have some of these other needs taken care of and you have a plan in place and all of that. So principle number four, investments should not take much of your time. And this is not so much a biblical principle as so much a common sense principle. Okay, so what's the purpose of investing your money anyway? It's really so your money will work for you and not you working more for your money. Because this is the whole point. You have earned this money through your career or your work somewhere. And now you have this money that you want it to actually increase instead of taking up more of your time. Because even Jesus himself, in the parable of the talents, he gave his, his servants the talents, but the servants themselves improved the talents, but they didn't just you know, work some more. They were servants. And they had other work to do for the master, which we all do. And then Jesus says, you should have given that money to the bankers or to the exchangers and let them deal with it. So there's this idea of it is an increased value on our time. So if we have money and the money is able to work for us, we shouldn't be looking at investments as something that requires so much more of our time that it detracts from giving our time and energy to other things that God has in our you know, life as priorities. Uh, so money should be freeing us up. Okay? We talked about freedom yesterday, and investing the point is also to give us that freedom. And so it shouldn't be another job, is what I'm saying. So a lot of times people look at certain things as investments when in actuality they could be better classed as second jobs. Okay, so multi-level marketing, a lot of people talk about that and I'm, I don't necessarily think it's a right or a wrong thing, but it's not really an investment if you think about it because it's a lot of work. It's another job. Uh, and I'll also mention this, I'll talk more about this later, but real estate, landlording, can be a complete nightmare. It, it is an investment in the sense of you have an asset, it produces rent income, but managing it, the process of doing it, water pipes break, pipes freeze, roof blows off, people trash the place, you have to evict people, you have vacancies you have to find and screen renters. It's like a job, right? So this is something to consider when you consider what types of investment you're looking into. 
what is the value on your time? Okay, it's not necessarily wrong to spend time on it. It will take some time. But um, if you're looking at it as, okay, I want to invest in this, but it's going to take me, you know, 12 hours a day sitting in front of the computer watching the stock market and, and doing day trading, I'm not sure that's investing. You're a trader. You're not necessarily an investor in that case. So it's the value on your time. All right? So number five, never invest in something you don't understand. Underscore, 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 underscore. Never invest in something you don't understand. Okay. You wouldn't believe how many people fall for this one. So what do I mean when I say understand? What do we need to understand? Okay. How does it make money? Because just because someone says, this is a great investment, you should invest in it. I've done it. I've earned this much money. That doesn't mean you understand a thing about it. How does it make money? And just as important, how can it lose money? And I'll just mention this. There is no such thing on the earth except in the bank of heaven, nothing here on earth that is a risk-free investment. You think, oh, it's FDIC insured. Well, really? Are you really going to trust the government <laughs> to insure your money? How can it lose money? How can it make money? How can it lose money? What are the costs? This is another thing with real estate. I'm throwing this out there. A lot of times when we think about real estate, we, we think, oh, this is the mortgage payment, this is the rental income, bam, you know, it pays off my mortgage, I'm golden. Well, guess what? <laughs> Owning a home, there are a gazillion costs. Not only is there the insurance, and then if you have a low amount of down payment on your mortgage, you have mortgage insurance, and then you have to pay taxes, property taxes, and then you have maintenance, and then you have yard care, and then you have to furnish the place and fix it up, and da 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 on and on and on, the list goes. What are the costs, okay? And then if it's another form of investment, what are the fees involved? Are there, are there costs that are hidden from sight? Maybe it's not actually something you pay out, but maybe it's a percentage that gets skimmed off the top of your returns, and uh, you, know, you just don't know about it, but it's actually impacting you. What are the costs? Do you understand how they work? And then, what are the rules and regulations? This is obvious. I think this is an obvious case. Uh, you know, am I allowed to actually rent this house out, uh, or am I allowed to do what I'm doing with whatever it is I'm looking to invest in? Okay. Uh, I want to build an apartment complex. Well, is it zoned in the right location? Right? Those are some of the questions. So, do you understand when a friend tells you this is hot stock you got to buy? You know, this is one, one thing I help, uh, helps me whenever a friend tells me, oh, you got to invest in this stock. I ask myself, is my friend Warren Buffett? If he's not Warren Buffett, does he, does he have better rate of return than Warren Buffett? If the answer is no, then I say no thanks. And uh, I don't know Warren Buffett, so that's just something that helps me out. So in other words, I never take stock tips from my friends. Um, an investing fad. You've heard about Bitcoin? Do you understand how it works? Okay. Two good to be true business opportunities. You get letters in the mail. You know, if you're a doctor or a dentist, people think that you're, you're wealthy. People are going to start pitching you ideas. I've got this new idea. I want to do this startup. You know, I'm going to make this app, and it's going to be, like, so big. If it's too good to be true, most of the time, it probably is. Okay? Is it a Ponzi scheme? Right? A Ponzi scheme. You heard about Bernie Madoff. His name is so ironic because he made off with people's money. 
But he is in jail now, largest Ponzi scheme ever, swindled $65 billion from his unknowing clients. And the Ponzi scheme, basically, he got people in, and then as he got more receipts of money, the people early on that want to cash out, he would promise them sky-high returns, and he would be able to keep up this, you know, this act until the pyramid comes crashing down. And they always fail. And you know, when we talk about uh, the, the athletes that go broke and all that, this is actually one of the biggest reasons why they go broke. If you read the articles about them, a lot of them, they have all this money, and people come to them and say, hey, we're going to help you keep your money. You earn millions, we can invest it for you, so you can have a long future and all this stuff. But what happens is they end up not investing or investing in stuff that they don't understand. And so they get swindled out of a lot of their cash from, quote-unquote, well-meaning people. And yes, that's an extreme example looking at athletes and all that, but what's to keep us from falling into the same ditch? So the point here, you just can't miss it. Never invest in something you don't understand. I'll just mention this as an example because someone brought it up to me in a question yesterday. Whole life insurance, okay? Recently, my wife and I got uh, term life insurance. We got life insurance because we have a baby now and I have an article I just wrote on, on the blog. You can read more information. But people ask me, why didn't, why didn't I get whole life insurance? Whole life insurance is a in, insur life insurance policy coupled with an um, investment uh, plan. The simple reason is I can never get a straight answer on how they work. And the costs are foggy, the returns are sort of questionable, and the business model makes me wonder about who is in whose interest and who's in whose pocket. And so whole life insurance, I can't really ex even explain to you how it works, and therefore I don't invest in it. Okay? So that's just an example. Number six, don't try to get rich quick, don't be greedy, don't speculate. These are all saying the same thing, and this is a principle straight, straight from Scripture. Proverbs 13, 11 says, Wealth gained hastily will dwindle, but whoever gathers it little by little will increase it. Proverbs 28, 20, A faithful man will abound with blessings, but whoever hastens to be rich will not go unpunished. The love of money, ladies and gentlemen, is the root of all evil. And this right here, haste to, haste to gain wealth, that's called the love of money, okay, in very practical terms. So let me share with you the story of tulip mania. So go with me back to the 1600s in the nation of Holland. There was a craze. There was a craze for tulips. What would you think if I told you you should invest in tulips? Would you think, oh yeah, that's a good idea. Well, actually... If you're a farmer, maybe. But here, in Holland, there was this, something sparked a deep interest in tulips. They thought that they had found this new market over in Asia or other parts of the Middle East or something, and they had this huge demand for tulips and special varieties and all, and all of this. And so the price of tulip bulbs went through the roof. They say at the peak of tulip mania, uh, the price of a bulb would go for 10 times the annual wage of a middle-class man. One bulb at the peak. And the price would shoot up in one month. They said it went up by over 1,000%. And so what would people do? They would speculate on tulips. They would buy a contract. They wouldn't even buy the tulips. They would go to the farmer and say, you've got tulips? All right. Uh, they're not ready yet, but 
before you dig them, I will give you a contract in which I will buy, you know, an acre worth of tulip bulbs. This is just an example of what it might look like. And he would say, let's say he pays $1,000. And then he would go to the market and say, I've got an acre of tulip bulbs for $1,000. How much would you be willing to pay for it? And someone would pay $2,000 for it because they think tomorrow I'll be able to sell it for $4,000. Because that's the price, right? That's the price that's going up. This is what's called a bubble. And this is what happens when people start speculating, assuming that the price is going to continue going up and up and up and up. And this is actually, I think, what most people associate when they think of the term investing. But that's not investing. That's speculating. And so, of course, one day, someone realizes, um, this is really dumb. One tulip bulb is not worth 10 years of my working life. And so the demand dried up, as happens to all bubbles. The bubble popped. The prices crashed. Entire Dutch economy nearly tanked. And we might be thinking, come on, tulips? That never happens. You remember what happened in 2008? It was the same thing. Except it was with houses and property. People were speculating that the housing market was just going to keep going up and up and up and up and up and up, and then it popped. And so people were looking at it from the greediness of their heart and saying, I want to speculate in this. I want to get rich quick. And we don't want to repeat the history of tulip mania. And so what's the difference between speculating and investing? What's the difference? Well, speculating is hoping for quick riches. Investing is patient and steady for the long term. That's a fundamental difference. Speculating, the motive is to get rich. Investing, the motive is to meet our needs. Okay? Speculating is based on arbitrary price movement, whereas investing is based on the expected productivity of an asset. So it's not wrong, necessarily, to invest even in tulips, right? If you're a farmer and you believe that tulips are going to you know, sell so much on the market, if it's based on the productivity of the land, how much is this land going to produce in flowers each year, that's a productive asset. But if you are arbitrarily hoping someone will pay you more tomorrow for what you bought, bought it for today, that's generally speculating. And so when we talk about stocks in the stock market, you can invest in the stock market by looking at a business and seeing what is the productivity, the value that this company will generate or you can look at it as just a slip of paper, who's going to pay more for it uh, from me tomorrow. Speculating is worried about the price. The question is, what is the price? Whereas investing says, what is the value? All right? So these are some framework for thinking uh, through the difference between speculating and investing. So we don't want to speculate. We want to be investors. Seven, balance, risk, and returns. So this is the part I have to make sure I explain clearly. So all investments have sort of this tug of war between risk and returns. Returns are what we earn on our investments. So this is like the, div, uh, the interest that we earn, the dividends, the capital gains uh, on, on our property, on our investments, assets. Risk is basically the possibility of losing our money on the investment. So like a market crash, a loan default, or things of that nature. So every, there's no such thing as a risk-free investment. So that means every investment is going to have risk and return. And they are usually on a spectrum with each other. All investments have risk, and higher returns correspond with higher risk. So if you have an investment that is 
you know, supposed to return 8% versus uh, something that returns 1%, you can know that the 8% investment is always going to be riskier than the 1%. That's always the case. However, just because something is higher risk doesn't necessarily mean that it has higher returns. Okay, you got to keep that in mind because is the lottery pretty high risk? Yeah, and people think, yeah, if I hit the jackpot, right? But the fact of the matter is, it's a loser's game. So that's gambling, that's not investing. And so once you get into gambling, it's high risk and low returns. So you just want to keep that in mind. All right, so we got to dig a little bit deeper here. So when we think about low risk accounts, we're thinking of things, or investments, we're thinking of things like money market accounts, CDs, savings accounts, bonds, things of that nature. And they are low risk, and some of them aren't guaranteed like FDIC insured accounts, but they have returns that lag inflation, okay? So this is a, a term that you gotta understand. Inflation has historically been about three to 4% for the past century. And we all know what inflation is, right? You remember how much you paid for a stamp a couple years ago? It's like every year, it's like 50 cents now or something. I remember when it was like 20 something cents. So it's like double the price for the stamp. And investments that lag this figure actually is losing purchasing power in the long term. This is something very important to remember because we may think I'm putting my money into a savings account and it's guaranteed to not lose anything. It's not gonna go up and down. $100 is gonna be $100 in five years, 10 years, 20 years. But here's the problem. Let's say in 1990 I had $10 in my savings account. The $10 in 1990 would buy what's equivalent to $18.48 today. So yes, your $10 hasn't decreased in dollar figure amount, but the actual amount of goods that it can purchase for you has in fact decreased by a large percentage. So what am I saying? In actual purchasing power, if you are just in a low risk account that lags inflation, you are actually losing money. And this is why investing is so important because I tend to associate this, if we put all of our money in losing uh, accounts over time, that sounds a little bit like burying my talent in the earth. That's just me though. Okay, volatility and short-term risk. So there's a flip side to this coin. And that is so, what about those investments that perhaps do have the higher upside that beat in, uh, inflation? So quote unquote, the high return investments that beat inflation in the long term have the short-term risk in the form of volatility. So if you have higher returns, you have higher risk, it's not guaranteed, it's not insured by the FDIC, and volatility is simply the up and down price movement. And this is what you hear about on the news about the stock market from day to day. Like, you know, Apple is trading 10% uh, down today. You know, you hear that on the news all the time. They're talking about volatility. And so here is where I get my 8% figure, okay? So the S&P 500 stock market index, which is probably the best measure of the health of the U.S. stock market as a whole, has returned around 8 to 9% annualized returns about the past century, okay? And factoring in inflation, real returns are actually more like 4 to 6%. So 8 to 9% before inflation has been the historical track record of the stock market, in other words. And because of that, this is the reason why I use this as the benchmark. It is the general health of the overall U.S. economy, and also you can, it is possible to invest directly in the S&P 500. It is a valid form of investment in an index fund. I'll talk more about that later as well. 
And so this is why I use the 8% figure. Now I will make this caveat. Every investment uh, prospectus that you read will say it. Past returns are no guarantee for future performance. That's just a fact. For any investment, this is simply looking at history. This is the best guess we have. In the future, economists are predicting that we're going to have a period of lower yields than that. So I don't know. I don't know if this is going to continue, but I do know that looking back for a long history, for a long period of time, this has been the case. All right? So that's the reason why I use 8% for those who have been curious. But back to my point here about short-term risk volatility and beating inflation. So we've got this investment here, let's say the, the S&P 500 uh, index fund. You invest in that over the past 30 years or so, and it's, or 25 years rather, I think is what I have here. And you get 8 to 9% as a potential. $10 invested in 1990 can now be worth as much as $44, okay? But of course, this $44, uh, but the $10 rather is more inflated, uh, in inflation-adjusted terms, is more like $18.50. But yet $44 has far surpassed the $18.50. But of course, the volatility, the bumpy ride that I talk about, is that this figure, the $10, might have dipped down to as low as $5 or less along the way to get up to the $44. Does that make sense? So it's not a straight line. It's like a roller coaster. It's a jagged line. But if you look at the overall trajectory of the stock market, it, 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 it's gone straight up, but over a long time horizon. And that's my point. So having said all of this, let's summarize. Long-term and short-term risk. So the risk of losing money. This is sort of a quandary because in our savings account example, in a week, the FDIC insured account is guaranteed not to lose money. So in a short term, it's very low risk. My money's not going anywhere. Inflation is not going to affect me in a week, right? And then in a decade, however, it's very likely to lag inflation. So it has poor long-term returns. So that's the problem with putting all of our money in a savings account or a savings bond or something like that. But if we invest in the stock market, on the other hand, in the S&P 500, as the example that I used earlier, in a week, the market can lose half its value. I mean, it's happened before, and that's a poor short-term risk. Very risky in the short term, but in a decade or more, uh, the history shows it's very likely to not only recover from the crash, but also exceed the rate of inflation. So in the long term, it gives you some good potential for uh, long-term results that beat inflation. So what do we do? What's the practical application here? We got to pick our risk wisely. Okay. So this is, uh, whoops, sorry, our typical uh, four by four quadrant here. So we've got short-term, long-term, and then low-risk, high-risk. And what we want to do is we want to stick in the low-risk section. Right? We want to minimize our risk, but yet balance out the returns that we get. So in the short term, we want to put things, uh, our, our money in things that are generally going to stay stable. So insured accounts, U.S. bonds, money market funds, things of that nature. Long-term, these are long-term investments. Stock market, real estate, land, things of that nature. And you want to split your money between them. Okay. You want to save for the short term and invest for the long term. Okay? And so yesterday we talked about our savings plan, how we have a long-term savings plan and a short-term savings plan. So this is very easy to remember. Short-term savings, five years or less. Long-term savings, five years or more. So if you don't need the money for more than five years, invest it in something that's higher yielding. Take a little bit, you can take a little bit more risk with it. Save for the short term. Make sure you secure that money in an account that's not going to just disappear if the market crashes. 
Uh, and so like things like retirement, uh, children's education, that kind of stuff, invest for the long term. If you're saving up for your next trip to GYC next year, uh, keep it in a savings account, okay? Is that clear? Does that make sense? I know I'm running through this pretty quick, but that was an important point. Now, related to that is point number eight here, which is the principle of diversify, okay? It's actually, we were just talking about diversification here, but the Bible tells us, Ecclesiastes 11, verse 2, give a portion of seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on the earth, okay? Another way of saying it is don't put all your eggs in one basket. If you invest all of your money in one company, and that company just tanks, guess what? You do too. And so what we were talking about earlier is, uh, is actually exactly this. Putting some of your money in short-term savings and some of your money in the long-term savings, that's a form of diversification. All right? And you can also diversify by different asset types. If you have all of your investment in one rental property, in one region, right, one house, a tornado comes, an earthquake comes, you're not very diversified. It's all egg in one basket. But if you have rental property and you have mutual funds and you have investments in your business or somewhere else, then you're not going to lose everything if one of them fail. Okay, so that's the biblical principle uh, to diversify. Number nine, you want to be mindful of costs and taxes. Okay, be mindful of costs and taxes. We talked about compounding interest uh, helping us, and it's like the secret to investing, but there are also things known as compounding costs. Okay, so costs that you have to pay to invest year after year after year after year, and taxes, annual expenses would fall in that category, and these compounding costs will negate your compounding interest and the higher returns that you would be getting otherwise. So your returns might be, you know, 5%, say, but after taxes and annual expenses, you know, and they're 3%, your return's actually 2%, just as an example. And so you'll want to beware of the high broker fees and hidden transaction charges. Those things add up over time. So I just mentioned briefly here, you want to use tax-sheltered accounts if possible. So these are some of the common ones. Retirement accounts, there are the 401k, 403b. These are the employer-sponsored accounts that you can take advantage of if you have them with your employer. Not everyone has them, but if you do. Or you can open up individual IRAs or Roth IRAs, and they have different tax treatments, you know, pre-tax, post-tax, when you get taxed on them, when you can start withdrawing. A lot of rules. I'm not going to bore you with all of that. You can look into it if you are interested. Now, I will say one thing. If you have a 401k or 403b, and your business or your employer offers you a match, meaning if you, can, if you contribute so much, then they'll contribute so much to match you, you always want to take the match because it's free money. Nobody should leave free money on the table. Okay? And yes, I know, it's like, oh, it's going to be locked in. It's going to... Are you going to tell me you're not going to take free money because you have to wait to access it? It's like, have a marshmallow now or wait and have two later? Same concept, right? Take, take the money. That's my point. Take the money. Okay, college. There are also college savings accounts. 529, the ESA, are two different forms of tax-benefited college saving funds. And of course, they have strings attached and all that kind of stuff. You can research it. There's even a health savings account. Health savings account is a way to minimize your health expenses with tax-advantaged savings. So I know you probably have a ton of questions about this. I'm just throwing it out there. 
Never invest in something you don't understand. So go and research this more if you are interested. But I don't have time to go through them in detail. All right, point number uh, 10 here, last principle before we get into some other stuff. For investing, we need to stay the course, but have an exit strategy, okay? And the stay the course part probably is the biggest problem, but as Adventists, with a special end time understanding of the world events, this gives us uh, some reason to be thinking about an exit strategy, and I'll share with you why. So let's talk about staying the course first. Emotions and investing are not a good combination. It's not. You should invest using the math portion of your brain, not the emotional portion of your brain. Don't invest based on emotions or fads. You know, you have your water cooler talk with your friends, and they're like, man, this is an awesome uh, stock that I have, or man, I earned so much money on Bitcoin, and all of this stuff, and you're like, man, I'm like behind. I'm being left behind by the Joneses. Well, they didn't tell you that the other three investments totally failed. You know what I'm saying? Like, people don't talk about that. So don't go by emotions or fad, because what happens is you buy in when everyone is so happy, and you buy in when it's too high, right before it crashes, and then when it crashes, everyone is sad, and you sell out, and guess what? You've just locked in your losses, right? You don't want to do that. So ignore the noise. Sometimes less information is better. Don't listen to all the noise, like, oh, the housing market is on a rebound. You don't want to miss it. Interest rates are going to go up. The Federal Reserve raised the interest rate you know, a couple weeks ago. So now's the time to buy your house. Buy, 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 right? Ignore the noise and focus on what your needs are and what the numbers tell you, OK? Because this is the way to get emotionally involved, and then you end up making rash decisions. So just be regular, be systematic, and be in it for the long haul. The number one reason why people lose money on their investments is they buy and sell and they trade in and out of stuff without knowing why. They just do it. But if you just buy whatever, be it a real estate deal or even if you're investing in some other sort of investments, the key is to be regular and to be systematic and to look at the long haul. And then keep saving. Your savings rate, as we mentioned before, number one secret to wealth building because you have the most control over it. So let's talk about the exit strategy for a little bit. This comes from the Spirit of Prophecy. Councils on Stewardship, page 59, paragraph 4. Houses and lands will be of no interest to the saints in the time of trouble. Okay, houses or lands, I can use a broader term of just all assets. Okay, all assets will be of no use to the saints in the time of trouble, for they will then have to flee before infuriated mobs, and at that time their possessions cannot be disposed of to advance the cause of present truth. I was shown that it is the will of God that the saints should cut loose from every encumbrance before the time of trouble comes and make a covenant with God through sacrifice. If they have their property on the altar and earnestly inquire God for duty, he will teach them when to dispose of these things. Then they will be free in the time of trouble to have no clogs to weigh them down. Continuing, page 60, I saw that if any held onto the property and did not inquire of the Lord as to their duty, he would not make duty known. And they would be permitted to keep their property, and in the time of trouble, it would come up before them like a mountain to crush them, and they would try to dispose of it, but would not be able. I heard some mourn like this. The cause was languishing. God's people were starving for the truth, and we made no effort to supply the lack of our property, uh, to supply the lack. Now our property is useless. Oh, that we had let it go and laid up treasure in heaven. Okay, next paragraph, last one. I saw that a sacrifice did not increase, but it decreased and was consumed. I also saw that God had not required all of his people to dispose of their property at the same time, but if they desired to be taught, he would teach them in a time of need when to sell 
how much to sell. Some have been required to dispose of their property in times past to sustain the admin cause, while others have been permitted to keep theirs until a time of need. Then, as the cause needs it, their duty is to sell. So it's pretty clear Spirit of Prophecy makes a sweeping statement. There will come a time for Advent believers to cut off all encumbrances. And we remember the parable of the, or the vision she saw the narrow way. Eventually, all the wagons are going to go overboard. But notice here, we're going to talk about this specifically tomorrow, about selling everything, the end times, and all of that. I just want to mention this. We're not selling because, for the sake of self-preservation. Notice she's saying, selling in every case, selling is for the advancement of the cause. When will God's work need the means to give the final push? It is never in the context of, when, is it, when, when do I need to let go to save myself? There's a, there's a difference here in the thinking, Okay. But what does uh, the Spirit of Prophecy actually say? Uh, what are the principles from what we just read, rather? So it is the will of God that the saints should cut loose from every encumbrance before the time of trouble comes. God does not require all of his people to dispose of their property all at the same time. We must earnestly inquire of God for duty, and he will teach us when to dispose of the things. And if we don't inquire of God, he will permit us to keep thing, uh, the property, and it will be a huge burden that we won't be able to dispose of. So these are the principles from the three paragraphs that we just read. So, practical applications, speaking of our investments. So, yes, we save for future needs. We continue on occupying until he comes, uh, performing the duty of providing for our family's necessities and all of those things with the understanding that someday, when the Lord is, uh, before the Lord returns, before the time of trouble, there is a point where God's work demands everything. There is a point, but when is it? He'll tell us when. Okay? It's not something that I tell you when or anyone tells you when. God will show you the duty. So with that in mind, when I look at my investments, I ask a simple question. How easy is it for me to liquidate this to put it all into God's work when the time comes? Okay? So I've got to have in mind the exit plan. So it's not to say that you should just go in and out, in and out, in and out. That's not the point. The point is because we know what the Spirit of Prophecy says, we should at least give some thought to what that process will be. So if I have property, how long would it, would it take for me to sell it? We've got to be understanding of this, right? And then I would give higher preference to uh, investments that are easier to get rid of, to those that lock us down. So that's a question of liquidity. All right, so this is an investment screening checklist based on the principles that we talked about for helping us screen appropriate investments. And a lot of this is subjective to you, okay? So is it easy to understand? Obviously, it might be easy to understand for me. It might not be for you, or it might be easy for you to understand, and I don't understand it. This is based on your personal research. Do you understand how the investment works? How much time is this going to take me to manage it? Is this speculative? Is it diversified? Is this an insured type of investment? which is what we look for for short-term investment? Does it beat inflation for long-term investment? Is it a low-cost investment? And how liquid is it? Meaning, thinking about the exit plan. What is the process that I have to go through to, to dump my assets when God asks me to? Okay, so eight points based on our principles to screen out, evaluate the investments that uh, are available to us. So let's talk about some of the investments, specific types that I have been uh, have experience with. <clears throat> so for short-term investments, these are the things that we put money in for five years or less. 
CDs, savings accounts, money market, bonds, and also the SDA union revolving funds. So what are they? Well, CDs, savings accounts, I think I don't need to explain to you what those are, hopefully. But you already know how low the interest rates are. You're lucky to get 5%, or, or I'm sorry, you're lucky to get 1% uh, on your savings accounts and CDs nowadays, but my guess is they'll start going up soon. Bonds are not too dissimilar. You can buy bonds in companies or in cities or bonds for states or bonds for uh, U.S. government, the federal uh, government. And then an SDA union revolving fund, this is something many of you may not be aware of, you can actually invest in the church. You can get these funds where you loan them money, and the church, the union, wherever you're based, will then loan that money out to their local churches for church building projects and whatnot, and the churches pay back the conference or the union, and you get a certain percentage uh, as interest. Okay, So you can invest and advance God's work at the same time with the revolving funds. And all of these are secured, or, or rather insured or guaranteed in some way. Well, except the money market here, but uh, savings accounts and CDs, FDIC insured, or if it's, a, uh, if it's a credit union as well. Bonds are insured by whatever level of government you're buying the bonds from. And then uh, SDA Church backs their revolving funds with the full faith and credit of the Adventist Church. So savings accounts or short-term investments, these are the ones that I have had uh, experience with. And the interest rate, they vary right now. Obviously, they're very low. They have been much higher before. So you just got to ask your question, do they pass these screens? You got to ask yourself that question. So let's talk about long-term investments, okay? This is where everyone is really curious. These are three forms of investment that I have had personal experience with. There are a gazillion of other options, but I'm just going to focus on the ones that I've had experience with myself. So real estate, let's start there. Real estate, in my experience, uh, has a lot of pros, but a lot of cons. Is it easy to understand? Yes, I think we all understand how they work. Is it speculative? Generally not. Not if you're just renting it out. Does it beat inflation? Yes. And if you are curious, the little rental house that I have on my, on my property, I've been getting about 10 to 11% return on that property. Okay? And I know people with investment properties where they earn far north of that. Okay? So it is definitely possible. But it's not low cost. I already explained a little bit of that before. And it's not liquid. You can't just sell it in a business day. You know, it's going to take time to list it and sell it. And then a lot of times, if you want to sell it fast, you take a loss to move it quick. And then how much time to manage? I mentioned that already before. It could take a lot of time to manage. But real estate is a very reliable and stable source of income for a lot of people. So it is a valid option, and I have had some experience with it, but there are those pros and cons. Now, peer-to-peer -peer lending is something fairly new and something fairly uh, interesting. These are the two companies that I'm familiar with. I don't know that there are any more out there. But Lending Club and Prosper, these peer-to-peer -peer lending services are online-based where it allows you to be an investor to lend money to people who need to borrow. And the service is set up to you know, meet whatever the SEC requirements are, and they are the ones that you know, maintain the anonymity, and they do the processing, and they charge you a small fee. Uh, but you can go and you can screen the various applicants of people looking for a loan. Why, are they, why do they need a loan? What's their credit score? What's their credit history? You know, what is their uh, little description of the, whatever they're trying to raise money for? And then you can diversify. You don't have to give them the full sum. You can invest in small chunks, even $25 per uh, investment, 
So you can diversify, again, there's that principle, across many loans. So if one person defaults on the loan, you've got the other ones to take their place. Okay? And so this is more for you to go and research for yourself if you are interested. In essence, it allows you to become the bank. You can be a bank to loan money to other people. And in fact, that's what the Bible said when we read about the children of Israel. You shall lend to many nations and shall not borrow. Here's an opportunity using technology for us to actually do that. And uh, for me, my rate of return from using uh, Lending Club in particular has been um, about 9%. Okay? So it is possible to get more than that, of course. You take more risk. Okay? And there's no guarantee, right? People might default and things of that nature. So there's risk involved, but I have uh, been able to get over 8%, around 9%. So you want to do the research, screen it. Peer-to-peer uh, -peer lending is an option. Okay, mutual funds. I got to talk about this because this is the most common form of investment. If you have, say, an employer-offered uh, investment account of some sort, and what are mutual funds? Well, mutual funds is a f an investment vehicle where many investors pool their resources together, and a professional fund manager takes that pool of funds and invests it across a diversified body of assets or securities based on a stated objective. And so it's by nature designed to be diversified and to not be as speculative and to not take much of your time because you're just putting your money in this pot and the professional is going to manage it for you. It's very liquid, generally, within one business day, you can cash it out. And does it beat inflation? It can beat inflation. Is it guaranteed to? Well, it depends on what fund and uh, what happens. But sometimes it's not so easy to understand because some fund objectives are a little bit shady. They're, they're stated vaguely so that uh, the fund manager can sort of do whatever he wants. So you want to really research them to see if you understand. And often, not always, often mutual funds can be very costly. There are the front end load, and there's marketing costs, and then there's the annual expense ratio, and all of that kind of stuff. You need to make sure you understand where the costs are coming in, because you might actually not be earning very much. So those are mutual funds, and it is actually very common for people in their retirement accounts, like I mentioned. So even if you don't choose to invest in them, it's good to understand how they work in case it is something that you run into at your workplace. So now this leads us to index funds, because index funds, I believe, mitigates the two biggest problems with regular old mutual funds. Number one, they're very easy to understand because an index fund, by its definition, is it matches an index. It's an index of either a stock market, uh, a segment of the stock market, or bond market, or even other asset types. And so what it means is, when I talk about the S&P 500, for example, you can look for an index fund that tracks S&P 500 index, and essentially, you've replicated that measure of the stock market. And so it's a one-stop shop. You can purchase it uh, and just like a mutual fund, and someone else will manage it for you. In fact, it's mostly done by a computer, probably. And because of that, it's very low cost. The, one of the lowest cost forms of investment is index funds. And I'll just mention this. When you're looking at mutual funds, one of the best predictors of success for any fund is the cost. Pretty much the lower the cost, the more successful it's going to be over the long term. That's just as a rule of thumb. And index funds, you can't beat them. Okay? And how liquid is it? It's the same. You can cash it out in 
like one or two business days. So this is my personal preference uh, in my investments, and I was just looking at it this morning over the past five years. Uh, my index fund that I have that tracks the stock market, it's uh, returned about 60%. Uh, that return is about a little bit over 10% per year over the last five years, but I will say the last five years has been somewhat abnormal, right? The market has been going up, so that's not to say that's a track record forever, but for the past five years, it has been over 10% each year. And so I will mention this as well. This is the company that personally I choose to use for my index fund investing, Vanguard. They are the granddaddy of investing, uh, of index fund investing, and they are the cheapest option you're going to find and greatest uh, determination of future success. So Vanguard, you'll want to check them out. What about individual stocks? I'm going to conclude here very shortly. Everyone always asks, well, what about investing in individual stocks? I don't recommend rec investing in individual stocks for a couple reasons. We could go through the screening uh, process, but I'll just mention this. Individual stocks can be very speculative in the sense that it goes up and down, and you have to really be on top of it to understand what's going on. And they can be very costly to invest in. Every trade you make, you have to pay a transaction fee, and then there are the costs of uh, taxes and on your dividends and all that kind of stuff. And so I don't recommend individual stock investing for general laypeople. Not that it's necessarily a right or a wrong thing. There can be stocks that you shouldn't involve, uh, get involved with, um, and there are stocks in good companies. But as a general rule, I don't recommend it for most people, and those are the reasons why. So let's summarize here as we conclude here, session number five. Careful stewardship means we aren't burying God's money in the ground. We need to invest for needs and not to hoard. All extra money from our investments should flow into God's work. Leverage compound interest. We need to start now. Okay, never invest in something that you don't understand. Very, very important. Don't try to get rich quick. Don't be greedy and don't speculate. Save for the short term, invest for the long term. And I define what I mean when I say those two things. And then diversify. Okay? Be mindful of costs and taxes. They're going to erode whatever compound interest gives you. Stay the course, but have an exit strategy that's based on our avenous understanding of the end times. And then God permits the owning of assets, yes, but we need to lay it all on the altar for him to tell us what to do with them. And the reality is, with this last point, this is true whether we live in the end times or not. It doesn't matter it's that the time of trouble is soon. That's irrelevant. If Jesus asks us, like the rich young ruler, to sell all that we have, it doesn't matter when he's coming again, we should sell all that we have. You understand? And so this here is always the case. All of our assets belong to the Lord. It's always on the altar for him to do as he chooses. So this brings us to the conclusion, and I am over time. I apologize for that. But let's conclude with prayer. Okay. I'm going to pray, and then we have one announcement right after that, so please stay by. So let's, let's pray. Father in heaven, I ask that you will guide us as we go to outreach now. Bless our time together. Help us to uh, apply the lessons we've learned today to our investing practices and that we might give glory to you and not bury our talent in the earth. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This message was recorded at the GYC 2015 conference called Chosen Faithful in Louisville, Kentucky. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, 
seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.